Greetings to you all and particular uh, welcome to uh, members of the Nguyen community that I see here today that I know well. Thank you for coming and people from many other um, places that I seem to know. I think that uh, I, I was going to talk about something about my new project on Nguyen. Uh, today, but when we worked out that it was the the week with a capital W um, of the first week in August, uh, we agreed that I should go back to this earlier work and talk about the story of the New Island involvement in World War One, and and I feel looking around at the the start of commemorations uh, around the world for the centenary of World War One. I feel very privileged that culture and heritage has chosen to highlight this particular story today, which is a very tiny aspect of World War I, but one of huge importance and pride for the people of Niue. And I know that they too will feel um, honoured that their story uh, is being highlighted. We went to live on Niue in 19... 97 for a three-year uh, posting for my husband. Um, I went fresh from the history classroom at Onslow College and um, I noticed that there were memorials to men who'd gone to World War I and I thought that was rather strange. Then when we got to our first Anzac service, um, my husband asked me, what did these men do in World War I? Is there something I can talk about? And I could find nothing. I have to say we had no internet or anything on Niue in those days, and so, um, but I did have an extensive library with me, and I could find nothing. And so we went to the Anzac service at the um, village of Tuapa, and the, um, this little, this memorial here was being opened that day, unveiled that day. Uh, and it was a memorial to the men from that village who went to World War I. And as we went through the day, we heard the story of Niue involvement in World War I. But in fact, it was largely a lost story. They knew that 150 men had gone from the island, and that was really, there was very little else that they knew. They knew that... Um, Yes, a lot of them came back, but they came back very different people. And they had lots of questions. And as the day went on, they asked more and more questions. And my little brain started whirring and thinking, where would you go to find the answer to some of these questions? So when we left the um, service, I, I said to some of the RSA people, I hear what you're saying. I've got some ideas. If you'd like to um, have me help you with it, with the um, research on finding the story, come and see me. And the next week, a deputation came to the High Commission uh, and asked me if I would research the story. They gave me a filing box with about six pieces of paper in it, mm -hmm. and they handed it over and they said to me, this is what we know, please find our history. And as Imelda said, that is a huge privilege and challenge for, um, I hesitate to call myself really a historian, but um, uh, for, 
for someone with a history background interested in history to, to actually do. I'm going to talk first about the, the actual story that I found and then um, uh, what this means for Niue. And I've also been asked to talk just a little bit about the challenges of uh, research in the Pacific. So I'll talk a little bit about that. Niue had been annexed to New Zealand in 1901 uh, and very little was actually known about Niue in New Zealand. This appeared a year before war broke out in the Auckland Weekly News, a full page spread, and the title reads, Land of Bananas and Coconuts, Scenes on Savage Island, Lying Between Tonga and Samoa. The coconuts and the bananas are there. Uh, there's a few dusky maidens. There's a matapa chasm, which is uh, a wonderful swimming place. And at the top, there's a picture of the New Zealand government um, school with actually, the, it's their woodwork class. And um, on the right, you can't see it very well, but there's a picture of the landing in the main village of Alofi which was a very precarious uh, landing place. A few years earlier, they nearly lost Premier Seddon's wife off that wharf, uh, which could have been uh, quite a, uh, an international incident. So that's the sort of thing that they knew. They were using the name Savage Island, which was the uh, name given to Niue by Captain Cook, and had really been um, not widely used for the previous at least 50 or 60 years but was still being used in the Auckland Weekly News. The island was typically misnamed, misplaced and misspelt. And in regards to the latter, that is still the case. And in fact, I was interviewed about this for this um, talk last week and in some of the advertisements for my talk on national radio I saw that uh, Niue was misspelt. It took five weeks for the news of the outbreak of World War I to reach Niue. Um, the island was very isolated, it was off the main shipping routes, there was no safe harbouring, and so shipping was very sporadic. In addition, there was no radio contact. It would be another 10 years before they decided that Niue needed uh, some sort of radio link with the outside world. So five weeks, news arrived in the form of a ship uh, arriving with mail from England for uh, a small European community uh, and, and obviously people talking about it. When news did arrive, there was much activity. The resident commissioner, Henry Cornwall, who, who was the um, New Zealand administration head, gathered the island council and related the news of war. They began collecting money and they decided to draw up uh, an offer of troops. The idea behind the offer undoubtedly came from the resident commissioner and also the missionary in charge of the um, LMS centre there, uh, who was also English. The offer, the idea for the offer came from them. The words of the offer are those of Tongia, the Patuiki or, or King, as he was known at the time. I use that term, King, advisedly. Um, and the, um, his words were actually, to King George V, all those in authority, 
and the brave men who fight. I am the island of Nui, a small child that stands up to help the kingdom of King George. There are two parts to the offer, money, men. The vessel left after two days and um, they had raised 165 pounds for the Red Cross in New Zealand, which was quite a substantial sum of money. Uh, and the offer of troops had been written out and was dispatched to come back to Wellington. Nothing more was heard for almost a year, although a new A regiment was recruited on the island by the police chief who happened to be uh, in, in the, uh, had been in the British Army during the South African War and he had moved to Niue as Chief of Police so he took upon himself the arduous task of um, recruiting men and um, leading the marching practice on the village green. An activity which I have to say Niueans love and um, I became the uh, judge of many a marching competition when I was on the island. I learnt quite a lot about marching. Um, this is what took place in Alofi and in Hakupu. There was regular marching practice, but there were no uniforms, there was no equipment, and there was no word from New Zealand that anything more would be required. They had about 200 men in the um, regiment that was training. Population on the island at the time was a little under 4,000. To understand why the offer of men was suddenly accepted in September 1915, so a year later, we need to look at the Maori contingent and what was happening in New Zealand. The first body of 500 men had, had left. Uh, they had no problem recruiting uh, 500 volunteers but the initial enthusiasm for the Maori contingent dropped away as the reality of death, disease and debility gradually sank in. Also following the August offensive on Gallipoli where the Maori uh, contingent was involved, that Maori contingent was actually withdrawn to Egypt and was disbanded as a separate unit. Men were uh, placed in other infantry battalions and this made recruitment in New Zealand more difficult because there was no Maori contingent with a separate identity at that stage. It, the hardest reinforcements to fill were the 2nd in September 1915 and the 3rd in February 1916. The former Maori contingent then at the end of um, uh, February 1916 became the Pioneer Battalion, a battalion of Māori and Pākehā but with the Māori identity stamped on the regimental badge and of course the Pioneer Battalion was a labour force. The key figure in all this activity in New Zealand with the Māori contingent was Māori Pōmāri, um, MP for Western Māori and Chairman of the Native Contingent Committee. He was very, very uh, enthusiastic about Māori involvement in World War I as a way of gaining equality. He um, was made chairman of this Native Contingent Committee whose job it was to recruit for the Māori contingent. Unfortunately, his electorate, Western Māori, was that area of the North Island most affected by land confiscations and they became 
the uh, most reluctant uh, to now put their young men forward for a war on the other side of the world. However, Paul Murray, uh, ever the politician, actually had one more string to his bow. He was the minister responsible for the Cook and other islands. And uh, Niue is, uh, comes under that word, other. He remembered that there were a couple of offers lying on his desk somewhere in Wellington, one from Niue and one from the Cook Islands. And when he couldn't find the recruitments for, for his reinforcements, he decided that they would come from the Pacific. 50 came from the Cook Islands and Pomari sailed up to Niue to personally accompany what, what started off as 200 when they'd gone through their medical checks, there were 150. So suddenly on Niue, but a marching on the village green, and then one day in September 1915, a ship appears on the horizon, comes in, there's a doctor on board, and they bring news that the men are to proceed to Auckland for further training and will then be embarked for Egypt. The uh, doctor is uh, charged with, um, obviously, doing the medicals uh, prior to enlistment. The men came into the main village of Alofi, had their medicals, um, saluted, uh, were given a cap if they passed. So they now, with their cap, they returned to their village and they were now enlisted soldiers waiting for the troop ship. Two weeks later, uh, there was another uh, yell, there's another ship, and in came the Tianao, uh, carrying the minister, and uh, there was a great flurry. Everybody from around the island began the trek to Alofi, the families bringing their men. And in this great gathering uh, at Alofi, um, they had a church service, the um, minister um, inspected the men. This is a very rare photograph actually on the island of the men before they left. I should just point out to you that um, Nui is spelt incorrectly. <coughs> the, the man with the pith helmet at the front is um, the um, uh, police chief who was doing the, um, you know, regimenting them. Pomari is actually in there in the white suit and behind him is the resident commissioner. And this man at the back is, I think is the private secretary to the, to the minister, although he does look as if he's escaped from the SIS or something. Um, and the men by this time that the Tianao had come in were given jackets and, and they had their uh, caps and they're all ready to go. And this is in Alofi, just before they are rowed out to the troop ship the ships cannot um, dock, there's no, they have to ride the tide out in the bay and ride the currents and they were rowed out. Who were these men? 150. Half of them were married. 30 of them had families of up to four children. One family from Hikutavaki farewelled four sons. Several families farewelled two sons at least. When they thought they had them all on the ship, they did a head count and decided they only had 149. So another man volunteered and they rode him out. When his wife found out, she launched herself into the water and began swimming to the troop ship. All around the wharf in Alofi, uh, it's a very rocky, very rocky island. 
people were at, at every vantage point to watch these men go. Once the vessel left, there was a complete news vacuum as the cyclone season set in and therefore there was no shipping. One man actually died in Auckland in December that year um, of pneumonia and news of his death didn't reach the island until May the following year. The journey to war and back actually took place within a year. Most men were back on Niue by October 1916. So within a year this experience took place. The main stages of their journey, first of all Auckland, Narrow Neck, or Naloneke, as it's known in Niuean, and one or two photos began appearing in the Auckland papers. They were an oddity, you know, there was something, there was something newsworthy about them because they came from this uh, remote island which nobody knew anything about, and um, they began training them. Problems began uh, um, surfacing immediately. Language, most of them spoke no English. Someone said that his English was passed as satisfactory when he was able to say, halt, who goes there? That was the sort of level they got to. I like that one. I found that photo in the days before papers passed, so I'm particularly proud of that. It took me two days in Auckland uh, Public Library, and I did let out a little bit of a scream when I found that one. <laughs> and everybody, everybody came to see what I'd found, and were, I think they were a bit disappointed that I had sort of <laughs> ten men sitting on the ground. Um, and I really like this man because he's got his shoe off, and that is a indicative of another problem. Nuaeans did not wear footwear. They went barefooted. The, the island is very, very old, hard coral. And they went barefooted. Their feet were very tough and they were quite splayed. Even, you know, when we went there, our boys went to Nuae High School and footwear was optional. And they said they were the only ones that wore shoes. And they kept on telling us that the boys had really big feet. And these guys had big feet, and they were a real problem. They had to, in many cases, have boots specially made for them. And of course, when they got their boots on, you know what it's like with a new pair of tramping boots or something. So trying to get used to the boots, um, and the the woolen, the woolen clothing, you know, the woolen, you've been expert on this, the woolen clothing, and prickly and, and horrible against your skin when you're not used to it. The food in the uh, camps, too much meat, they were becoming ill. They actually changed the um, diet in the in narrow neck camp for the Pacific Islanders. The 50 Cook Islanders were in here too, uh, to put more fish in the diet, to put more fruit in it, to try and accommodate them. There's a few, I'll just whip through these quickly. That's one platoon. We haven't found all the platoon photos. I've got two of them. Um, so here they are lined up. Uh, Te Papa have taken those and have individualised each head uh, and hat uh, in their um, Pacific uh, area, which is very interesting when you look at them. You know, the, the fa you can see the faces are so young. 
um, if they didn't know when they were born and there was no births, deaths and marriages records so they just said they were born in 1895 an awful lot of them supposedly born in 1895 which made them eligible for service um, but some of them really so young some of them had these individual photos um, done at Naronet camp by commercial photographers who came in and um, took photographs and then touched them up and you know staged them a bit and there's very few of these um, I suspect there might be a few in Auckland these are ones that were on the island that people uh, lent me they didn't um, train with rifles because most of the time because they were going to be part of a labour force they weren't going to be using um, rifles or anything like that so that but that's for the photograph that's okay Okay, so in February 1916, 140 of them embarked. The others were too ill to leave New Zealand. They sailed to Egypt, uh, to the port of Suez, and the moment, from the moment they got there, the group started to be split up through illness. And the illness is the big, big feature of it. They had no immunity to European diseases. And because of the isolation of the island, they hadn't really gone through this process in the 19th century of, of, you know, becoming ill and building up immunity. So it really did strike the Nuaeans um, particularly badly. And from the moment they arrived at Port Suez, 15 of them were stretched off into hospital. Uh, one of them died the day they arrived there. And in, in my working through the personnel files, the thing that strikes me is this constantly this separation and isolation of these men who were in addition isolated by their lack of English language and so um, very very um, frightening for them. A, a New Zealand medical orderly whose diaries in Alexander Turnbull he speaks of the islanders in hospital in Egypt um, and says how how sorry he felt for them that they couldn't speak English and he says they were terrified of this dysentery. They couldn't explain to them what was needed for them to recover from dysentery. Um, they couldn't explain anything. The men had only been in Egypt for a couple of weeks when the um, New Zealand Expeditionary Force was um, ordered to, to France, to the, to the Western Front. And the members of the um, Nuean group, now part of the Pioneer Battalion, who were well, which was about 60 of them by now, illness, very, very high rate of illness. So about 60 of them were still um, fit. They were embarked at Alexandria for the trip across the Mediterranean and into France, 60 hours on a train from Marseille up to the um, to the north of France to a very, very bleak spring um, on the Western Front. And again, this, this separation of men continues. Um, an example of Kanatao from Makefu. He was left in Marseille when they arrived there. He was on the dangerously ill list with pleurisy. He was put into an Australian hospital in Marseille. He was then sent to a, um, another hospital in the north of France. He was then put on a hospital ship and sent to England. He went to two different hospitals in England 
and then was invalided back to New Zealand on a ship carrying only one other New Ayan. And I think particularly when I did this work, and I still think now, particularly of people like him and the, the, dreadful, the dreadful isolation that they faced. In the, in the north of France, men, the men began working as part of the Pioneer Battalion, mainly at night through May because um, they were in the battle zone and the sickness rate soared. And by the end of May, probably the only sensible decision that was made was made at that time, which was to withdraw the New Orleans from the battle zone. They were sent to the New Zealand camp at Etaple, over in the west, and then sent to England, to the New Zealand Convalescent Hospital at Hornchurch in Essex. Hornchurch, I think, has and I think will develop even more over the next few years as we go through the centenary, will develop a very special link with Newey. The people of Hornchurch were enchanted by these men from the South Sea Islands. There was this very, you know, you can imagine the sort of picture in their head. In addition, the people in Hornchurch found out that there was a missionary couple in London who had served 42 years on Newey. The Reverend Frank Laws and his wife Sarah, they had recently retired to London. They spoke fluent Newayan. They loved Newayans and they were loved by them. And they went to Hornchurch and they helped, um, they helped the organisation explaining to the people in Hornchurch, explaining to the Newayans. Mrs Laws took some little groups who were well, took them on little trips to London, which must have been very ex uh, exciting, and um, bought pencils for everybody to take back to, to the island. Uh, the people in Hornchurch collected um, pineapples and bananas, uh, imagining this is obviously what you would eat in the South Sea Islands, and they made regular regular fruit collections. They arranged for Newayan services in their church because the Newayans, one of the Newayans, was a was in fact a native pastor. So they um, they were very good to them, and one man in the group uh, particularly like. Um, uh, Moki, he uh, comes from a very small village of Fasiao, and um, he told the story in Hornchurch that he was um, the son of the ruling king of Niue. Um He was no relation to the man who was called by the uh, Europeans the king. He was no relation to him. He was obviously a bit of a character, and obviously the men liked him because otherwise they wouldn't have gone along with his nonsense. Uh, unfortunately he died at Hornchurch. Four of them, four of them died and I don't know, somebody might know more about this but it's the only time I've seen two people on one headstone. So on the left is Filitoua and Taleva and on the right is um, Moki and Who's the other one, Falkland? Um, you've got a bigger picture. Never mind, we'll come back to that. Uh, Moki, oh, there it is, I've got it written. Vassal. <laughs> okay. Um, Moki died, and um, the entry in the church diary refers to the burial of His Highness the Prince Rangatira, known as Prince Moki, 
son of the ro- of the ruling chief of the island of Niue, in the Cook Group in the South Sea Islands. <laughs> he, in the in the church diary, I just noticed this today. I just uh, one local history records the event of his funeral. St Andrews would have seen many moving and unusual sights in its long history, but the uh, the funeral of Prince Rangatira must have ranked high on the list. The sun filtering through the south windows onto the coffin and the church crowded with his fellow soldiers. The villagers, many of them already dressed in black to mourn their own dead, came to pay their last respects to a man they had come to know and like. The service ended with the prince's comrades singing a funeral hymn in their native language to a native tune. It actually took me uh, several letters before I plucked up enough courage to tell the people of Hornchurch um, in the late 1990s that he was not a prince. Um, uh, and I, I, I waited for the flack, and they, but they seemed to have accepted it and uh, moved on. Uh, the, the men from Hornchurch, they were now moved out in two main bodies back to New Zealand. Uh, they took a group of 50-something um, and sent them uh, off uh, on their way home. Five of them died as they came down the coast of Africa um, and they were buried at sea. And for some mysterious reason, known only in some office in Wellington, uh, their names appear on the memorial arch at the Karori Cemetery <coughs> here in Wellington. It was a bit of a discovery. Um, the, the men who um, died at sea Several of them, their photos appeared in the Auckland Weekly News. Um, those, f- those four along the bottom, I think, all died at sea. I might be wrong. There's four of them there, and these, oh, these, two, oh, sorry. My kids always at school always loved it when I did this, and they used to unplug things deliberately because <laughs> they knew that I was fairly incompetent with technology. Um, this, this one, and this one. And this one are three of the four sons from one family. Uh, the two at the bottom died at sea. The one on the top left, uh, Hippa, he returned to the island. He, he appeared in the Auckland Weekly News because he was um, um, enlisted as um, wounded. He was actually ill. Uh, th- those are fairly rare to, to appear in the Auckland Weekly News. To appear in that... Uh, in those great pages that came out, families had to send those in. So there were, and there was a very small New Ayan community in Auckland, and obviously there were, there were some who um, brought the photos out. When they returned to New Zealand, um, they were held in convalescent camps and uh, convalescent hospitals in Auckland. The army made the decision not to issue them with train passes and give them leave in New Zealand. They wanted to keep them together as a body, and when shipping became available, uh, they were returned to the island. By ni- late 1916, most of them were home. That journey to war and back is marked by a, a small uh, trail of headstones in each of the locations, in Auckland, in Egypt, uh, France. Egypt and France, of course, they're in Commonwealth war graves. Uh, in Hornchurch, the, the, the four men there, and then the five at sea um, at Karori. 
New Orleans were the first large Pacific Islands group sent to the Western Front and the impact of illness was swift and overwhelming. I've been through every personnel file for these men and I've calculated 82% were at least hospitalised in their time away. Cook Islanders suffered similar problems but the group at the time in the north of France was much smaller and a second contingent ready to go from the Cooks was delayed until a suitable location and role could be found for them. The, the answer to that was Palestine where the Cook Islanders, now formed into the Rarotongan Company, served successfully from late 1916 until the end of the war. And the few Cook Islanders who were still in the north of France were transferred to the Middle East. There was an offer of a second contingent from Niue uh, and the offer was declined. What's the legacy of uh, this trip for the Niueans? First of all, there was a legacy of illness particularly pneumonia and tuberculosis. And my research is not exhaustive, but what I found in the Justice Department in Niue was that there were at least 15 more deaths in the first five years home. So I should have said that 17 died while enlisted, then another 15, and the rest did get home, but many were left with this legacy of illness. People talked about the cough that men had, and the ongoing health problems. Another legacy though is of course uh, a sense of pride that the people had helped New Zealand and that they'd helped King George. Was there a reciprocal feeling from New Zealand? Well there were signs after the war that their contribution was acknowledged. There was a um, I just have to see what the next picture is because I can't remember. Oh yes, that's them in the convalescent uh, hospital in Auckland. That's quite a good, uh, a good photo, waiting for um, a ship to take them back to, to Niue. And I think the lady in the middle in the black, I think she was the wife of the mayor of Auckland or something, so they'd obviously gone along to photograph her visiting the boys. This is the first uh, memorial uh, here that was uh, given by New Zealand, plus they gave that, um, I'll call it a field gun, I'm quite prepared to be corrected, I'm not very good on those sorts of things. That was given in the 1920s as an acknowledgement. Uh, and the marble part of that, this, this part here with the names on, that's still, that's gone through about four different memorials now because they, um, they don't last very long up in that uh, climate. And they either get worn away gradually or blown over by a cyclone but the marble um, tablet is still there and is in the most recent memorial. The field gun was actually buried during World War II in case anybody uh, enemy approaching might think that the island was fortified. Um, buried up by the golf course just in case any of you want to go back and look for it. Apparently it hasn't, apparently it hasn't been um, dug up. There's, there's a sense of a shared history with New Zealand, I believe, and a shared experience that um, binds New Zealand to Niue, that I feel, um, I feel a that we have a responsibility to continue. My, my 200 year history shows a considerable amount of neglect by New Zealand 
um, certainly after the First World War, uh, during that interwar period when Samoa and the Cooks became much more uh, pressing in their uh, demands for attention, and Niue tended to be the Cinderella. Now that the story of um, Niuean involvement's been uncovered to some extent, um, Niueans have really embraced their Anzac commemorations. They've been able to take the history and commemorate it in the way that they want. For example, um, there are quite a lot of memorials um, because many of the villagers didn't know who, who had gone and now they've found out who've gone. They've done their own village memorials. Um, this is at Hikutavaki. I like this one because you can see the Pacific behind and there's no, there's no lagoon around Niue. You drop out immediately into the deep ocean and you can stand somewhere like that at that memorial and as far as you can see there's ocean. And it's quite hard to get your head around how did these men or why did these men go where they went and end up on the Western Front. I like this one too because of the coconuts. This is at Tomakatonga. And they told me when I went back there recently that they have taken the, the, the story of um, World War I. Now they know all the men from their village who were involved. When they have their village Anzac service, they, they have a person out the front representing each, each man who went from that village. They try to have someone, obviously, who's, who's a descendant, but with the um, movement of population off the island, that's not always possible, but they have someone to represent each man, and they have a roll call, and as they call the name, that person goes forward and puts a poppy on that memorial. And I think it's fantastic to hear them uh, talking about how they are using the history to commemorate. Uh, the Auckland community uh, now have their own ANZAC services uh, and um, I heard this year that one had been held in Sydney for by a small group of, of New Orleans. Just finally, um, a few of the challenges of um, Pacific research. I guess the biggest I guess the biggest challenge is being a Palangi. Um, and it's very it's important to proceed very cautiously and, and uh, carefully and gain trust. When they gave me that box with a few bits of paper in it and said find our history, I can remember I sort of felt as if I was gulping a bit and um, one of the things I did early on was that when I started getting material I asked if I could put on an exhibition at their museum. So the next Anzac Day I did an Anzac exhibition and I wanted to show them that I was actually very serious about this research, that I was going into it um, as thoroughly as I could. And I thought it might provide a catalyst for people to come forward and share stories. They said I could have uh, part of the museum for two weeks. And when they saw the exhibition, they refused to take it down. They uh, made it a permanent uh, exhibition. Cyclone Heta in 2004, took the whole museum away and so we lost that but if I just go back to this guy Pimaleko when when the exhibition was on the school came down to have a look at it and they asked me to uh, come and come and speak to the students and one boy was wandering around the museum and he saw this name Pimaleko and he knew that name came from his family and he got very excited 
and he ran around telling the people in the museum and telling me, that's, that's my family, that's my family. And the next day the museum rang me and said, we think you'd better come down. And I went down and this photo, big framed, a big, big framed copy, had arrived wrapped in newspaper. The boy had taken it from his grandmother's house and had brought it in to show them, you see, Pimaleko is in my family. And so the museum staff um, jumped in the car and went to Mutalao to um, talk to Grandma and assure her that we hadn't stolen it. And um, she agreed to entrust it to me to bring to New Zealand for, for restoration and um, copies. So that it brought out that sort of thing and it brought out um, stories. Another problem is the lack of written resources, both because New Ayan history is an oral history and because paper doesn't last in that climate. And in that respect, I just mentioned the Pacific Manuscripts Bureau, who have done a huge microfilming project in the Pacific. And I bless their cotton socks every day that I work on my history, um, because their microfilming has made available um, huge amounts of material, which are now gone to the Pacific. Another problem is the lack of actual New Ayan material. What was the New Ayan response to events? How did people feel? What was the New Ayan perspective? It's very hard to know, of course. Um, I took part in another project on the island, which was to locate and record the location of all graves of returned servicemen. They do not bury in cemeteries, they bury on family land. So it's actually looking like looking for a needle in a haystack when you see the, the terrain and the bush and the, and the forest. And I went out with the New Ayan archivist uh, on many an expedition uh, and with village elders. We went into the bush with our machetes and we had um, days, you know, and we cleared the bush around sites and photographed them and recorded exactly what the location was uh, because there's a name for every little fragment of land. And that, that, that is one of my most precious memories of Nui, sitting out there in the bush, having a bit of pawpaw and drinking from a coconut and being stung by hornets. And, um, and I feel that it helped to give me a Nui perspective. Of course I'm not Nui and I can never have a real Nui perspective, but I feel it helped. Throughout the research, I've kept in mind the need to take the oral history as the base for the work. If something is remembered and talked about, then I believe that story has to have a kernel of truth in it that needs to be teased out somehow. So at the first Anzac service, when I heard the man talking about his grandfather who went to India, I was very puzzled about this for a long time, but there had to be something in it. And of course the troop ships stopped at Ceylon, which was part of British India, and although the troops weren't allowed off, the, the locals all came out in their boats to, with, with their fruit and their crafts and all the rest of it. And you imagine for someone from this little island of Niue seeing um, the, the, the port in, in Ceylon and, the, and all the troop ships and all the hustle and bustle. And that was, that was Grandad's experience of um, India. Someone talked about going to Gallipoli and I kept on saying to them, don't talk about Gallipoli, your men didn't go to Gallipoli. They, one man talked about Gallipoli 
And I have to say, for my Nguyen friends that are here today, I have found the man at Gallipoli. And he's in my new book. <laughs> which will be available for purchase next year. Um, and, but I have found a new way. And of course, he didn't come as part of the contingent. He was in Auckland uh, working in a barber shop when World War I started. He uh, enlisted and he was put into the Auckland Infantry. And he went up onto the slopes at Gallipoli on the 8th of August. And he was uh, very badly wounded. Uh, and. Um, he went through you know, hospital ships, hospitals, transporting all around the place, eventually brought back to Auckland, um, discharged but in and out of Auckland Hospital and died uh, five days before war ended. So there was somebody at Gallipoli and I found missionary letters from the island talking at the time about one of our men who has been in Gallipoli. So there you know, you listen to the oral history. And, and actually a piece of advice I was given um, when I gave a talk on Niue, and I try to keep this in mind uh, when I write, uh, I gave a talk one day, um, actually in a church service, which was a little bit strange for me, but um, I talked about the day the men went to war. And someone said to me afterwards, write our history the way you tell it. And that's what I've been trying to do, in to try and, in some way, in get that sort of oral history tradition into a written work. And and a final plug for my new work because um, the, this work on World War One has actually given me um, a, a a degree of trust and goodwill on the island, which has actually enabled me to embark on a 200-year study. And I've gone back to the island several times and said, are you sure? Yes, 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 we want you. We want you to do this. And so um, I'm in the, um, <laughs> I, ho I hope I can say the final stages uh, of a work that's going to be published next May. And I've received funding uh, to go to Niue and um, take the history home.